Welcome to Eat and Stay Podcast, the podcast where we interview those who dominate the hospitality industry. From restaurants to hotels to events and experiences, well, we're curious about all of it. We want to know what makes the industry experts tick and how they got started. Join us as we learn the tips, tricks, and dirty little secrets about what it means to start and dominate the industry that everyone wants to be a part of. Welcome to Eat and Stay Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to Eat and Stay Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to last week's episode, which was our first episode ever. We had a great time talking with Cole Peterson and Lizzie Caston, who gave us a lot of insight about Caravan Tiny Home Hotel. They talked about what it what it means to start a hotel from scratch, uh, you know, talked about permitting, all that kind of fun stuff that you would need to know to operate, own and operate your own hotel brand. Super informative, super informative conversation. I would urge you to check it out if you haven't already. This week, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to talk to someone who owns and operates a restaurant. So today, we're going to be talking to Sarita Ekya. She is the founder and co-owner of SMAC, which stands for Sarita's Mac and Cheese. And it is New York's only exclusive macaroni and cheese eatery. Um, Sarita owns and operates Smack with her husband, Caesar, and they've been doing this since 2006. So I'm super excited about t- today's conversation to find out a little bit more about how this idea came about, if they've run into any hardships, uh, what the process has been like, how it's been being successful, and just overall what it's like to start and run your own restaurant in New York City. So without further ado, I want to present the conversation with Sarita of Sarita's Macaroni and Cheese. Okay. Hi, Sarita. Hello. Yeah. So I'd love to, um, you know, give our listeners a sense of who you are, what you do, and give us just a brief rundown um, of your role with Smack. Sure. So uh, my name is Sarita Akian. I'm the owner of Smack, which is short for Sarita's Macaroni and Cheese. Uh, it is an all macaroni restaurant. We opened our doors in 2006, so we've been around for a while now. Um, and we were the first ever restaurant just to focus on different types of mac and cheese. Since then, others have popped up, but we we uh, we like to call ourselves the pioneers in the industry. So it's myself and my husband who run the restaurant. Uh, before we we did this, uh, we both come from an engineering background. Actually, I'm a mechanical engineer by trade, and worked in that field in the biomedical field for a number of years. Uh, my husband uh, was was is an electrical engineer, software engineer, and worked also in that trade for a number a number of years before we opened up the restaurant. Wow. Okay. So engineering to macaroni and cheese. So what was kind of the the impetus for that uh, switch there? Yeah. There's a little there's a little backstory. So we were living in Manchester, New Hampshire at the time. Um, when we used to, we used to just travel to New York City regularly. We would, even if it was just like one day on the weekend, the drive is about four to five hours, and we would even go for, leave early one morning, come late one night back, just because we loved the city so much. So shortly after we were married, we decided we would move to New York City one day, and 
May of 2005, I believe it was Memorial Day weekend. We were driving back from New York City and I said, you know, we keep saying that we're going to move to New York City, but when are we going to do it? We should just do it. And in that drive back, we decided that we would do it. And then July 31st, we moved up to the East Village in Manhattan. And it was a great choice. You know, we're still in New York. We love it. Uh, and our thought was that we would just pick up engineering jobs, uh, respective in our field. So we were at a time where in, you know, 2005, there were plenty of jobs available in both of our industries and we had experience. So, you know, it wasn't an issue. And we, when we landed July 31st, we happened to land in a neighborhood that has just a tremendous amount of hole-in-the-wall restaurants that serve amazing food that probably you know a lot of them seat less than 30 people and we were very intrigued and started eating out just regularly like you know we became typical new yorkers pretty fast we started you know we didn't use our kitchen we wanted to eat out and during august so the first month we were here august of 2005 we found so many niche restaurants uh you know things that would take one item places that would take one item and do it so well and we just started kind of like hunting those down because we just love them. And in our in our you know our uh, in our hunt for for the next restaurant that did something very interesting, we we landed at the Peanut Butter Company in the Village, and we we're eating our PB and J sandwiches. And at the time, you know, we couldn't believe there was a restaurant that just did peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Of course, now looking back on that, like of course there's a place that does that. Uh, but in that conversation, I said to my husband, Caesar, I said, you know, wouldn't it be great if there was a place that just did uh, PB&J and grilled cheese? Oh, and mac and cheese. Like, you know what? That's the next restaurant we're going to go eat lunch at is we're going to find a place that just is, does different variations of mac and cheese. And this is in 2005. So, you know, there's not a lot of like social media tools on hand at this point. Uh I think the term, like, I'm going to Google it, was still pretty relatively new back then. And, you know, we went home to our, I think our single computer that we had in our apartment, and we just started looking around, and we found that there was not a place that just did mac and cheese. There's plenty of restaurants ranging from diners to high-end restaurants that did a great mac and cheese and got reviewed on places like Chow Hound, a message board about, board about food that was really big back then. Uh and we're like, wow, this is interesting. There's no place that does just mac and cheese. So that seed got planted in both of our heads after that conversation we had. And we couldn't let it go. And literally days after uh, coming up with this idea, per se, we decided that we would start looking into what it would take for us to open up a restaurant. Uh, you know, mind you, in the, in the meantime, we were also interviewing for jobs in and engineering and what we had promised each other was that you know we had made this what seemed bold at the time this bold move of quitting our secure jobs in new hampshire to move to the city of Man and be in manhattan uh so we said if we are you know when we take jobs we're either going to love the jobs we take or we would have run out by money money by then and we're just going to take jobs you know that we're somewhat satisfied with and so we're just in the in the very new stages of interviewing and neither of us was finding anything that we really like we were really motivated to do uh, that was you know gelling with what you know we wanted to do it and we also knew that we wanted to eventually open up our own business uh, 
we didn't ever think it would be a restaurant. We thought it would be more engineering related, but you know, it was kind of the timing of it, the time and place. Like we've already made this huge change. I came up with an idea. We both believed in it very strongly and couldn't let it go. And literally nine months later, we opened up Smack. Okay. Well, that's awesome. So let's kind of backtrack a little bit. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot that goes into, you know, I have an idea for a restaurant and, and to actually opening up a restaurant. So let's kind of talk about, you know, once you guys decided, Hey, we're going to open up this restaurant, what were the next steps for you guys? Yeah. So we, so we decided to open up the restaurant and the first, even just even before, like when it's still in our heads, the first couple of weeks, what we did is we just started walking into, uh, restaurants or, uh, bodegas or cafes and talking to business owners. That was that was the first and foremost thing we did, you know, because we had no clue what it took to run a business in New York City. Uh, so basically, it's like let's just let's just talk to people, and that probably was the most helpful thing. And even to this day, just you know, anytime we eat somewhere, we end up finding out if the owner is there, and we just chit chat with them, uh, because what people who are living it it's very raw for them and they're most people will share their experience most people don't even get an opportunity to share their experience so they feel they welcome the fact of like you know being able to share things we learned so much in the first uh two weeks of just doing that not only that it's it's you know now you've got you've got a connection to an into to Say, for instance, we were, we were, we met this um, woman, uh, pastry chef, who opened this fantastic small uh, Indian restaurant in the village, in the West Village in New York City. And just chit-chatting with her, you know, we, we, we clicked, we hid off right away. And a month after, you know, we had told her what we were thinking of doing, she called me and she said, are you still thinking of doing what you're doing? And I was like, yes. And she was like, well, I'm really in need of someone to work the front of the house for my restaurant would you be willing to do that? And that I will train you on the back of the house. And it literally was like, I, I got, I picked up this part-time stint in a small restaurant in the West village from someone who's been in the industry for decades and learned so much from her. Uh, in turn, she knew that I was someone serious who would be in the business who she could trust with the front of the house, with cash handling, with customers and whatnot. So, you know, it was, it was these kinds of relationships that really helped us in the very beginning. So what were the types of questions and conversations that you were establishing with these restaurant and small business owners when you and your husband would go in and talk to them? I think a lot of our initial questions were more so of, you know, how, how, you know, the starting, the starting phase, like who did you get to do your build out for your store? How did you decide what size, size of space you needed? Um, how did you decide on that exact location? Like those kinds of things, like mostly focusing on storefront, uh, securing a lease and, and general, you know, general, general questions of, you, we, you know, you can ask people about foot traffic, but you know, you can never compare it to a, a restaurant that you're going to open that hasn't been around ever. So some of the other things that we did, and it's, you know, it probably sounds very rudimentary, but we, we had to was we didn't have any kind of other restaurant to base ours on. So we needed to come up with a business plan to figure out what our foot traffic would be, you know, what our financial uh, projections would be. So we literally sat across 
across the street on a stoop looking at like numbers of plates of people walking in and out of restaurants that were niche restaurants like there was you know a dumpling place and we sat and just looked at the foot track traffic for there there was a, a grilled cheese place at the time we sat across the street and looked at the numbers of foot traffic for there just to kind of calculate calculate what you know, our, our daily sales volume would be. Uh, so those were a lot of the initial things we were doing. And again, we were so green and we had so much to learn that one of the things that we did was we just took it day by day. It was like, okay, what can we accomplish today? Because we have a whole industry to learn about. And if you think about it, it's, you know, if we could get super overwhelmed and just shut ourselves down and not do it, but we really wanted to do it. So that was one of the things that we definitely uh, it was good of us to do early on was to like, just look one or two days ahead to be able to get to the next step. Right. So, okay. So you guys are, you know, checking out different locations. You're asking business owners questions. You're kind of getting a sense for how things, uh, operate and run. Walk me through the process of when you guys secured the space, um, that would eventually become the storefront for Smack. Yes. So we started this process in August. We, we signed our lease October of 2005. So just two months later, uh, we, you know, we pounded the pavement for weeks and weeks and weeks, just looking for places. And the, the nice thing is we had the time, like we weren't working. So we, you know, we could dedicate every hour of every day to, to doing this, except for when we were sleeping, you know, so it was a lot of footwork and legwork. And, and we, you know, one, one of the, things one of the business owners had told me from the very first moment they talked to us was whatever you do don't fall in love with the space and what did I do I fell in love with the space as soon as I saw it and the space was 345 East 12th Street and it was what what ended up being our original location it was bigger than what we were looking for we were actually looking for something that maybe was 300 square feet so literally a kitchen, maybe a few stools, seating kind of thing. Uh, and this place was closer to double that. It was just under 600 square feet. But it had this beautiful, almost square uh, layout, which is very rare in New York City, especially in the East Village. A lot of a lot of places are, are narrow and long, so you don't get that natural sunlight. This storefront got so much sunlight. And then we were also very lucky at the time because it was owned individually by... Um, by a lawyer and three of his colleagues. So it was also a reasonable rent because that's one of the biggest challenges in New York City is finding something that you can afford because they're they're really the rents in New York are crazy and there's a lot of there's a lot of commercial vacancy. So if you are looking to rent from someone who, you know, some kind of black hole entity that owns so many buildings, it can be very hard to negotiate a lease. This, on the other hand, was an individually owned building and we were able to to actually get a decent rent on it. So it was kind of like a win-win. The, 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 the biggest drawback was we didn't, you know, we didn't envision having a place that was that big. I mean, it doesn't sound big, I know, but it was big, like I said, twice of what we thought we would have. Uh, but that worked out well too, because actually when we opened our doors, you know, seven months after signing the lease, um, we needed actually a bigger space. So, so it was good that we had secured this actual location. Right. So 
In terms of, you know, signing the lease, what did that look like for you guys in terms of a risk perspective? I know you said that you guys weren't working at the time. Um, You know, had you have, did you have money saved up? Did you, you know, did you have any sort of side income coming in to help while you guys signed the lease? Um, And, you know, how long was the, the lease term for? So we signed our lease for, uh, I'm trying to remember, because this le- the lease changed over, over the course of the, our duration there because the, the building got bought twice over. Uh, our original lease was, I believe, five, it was either five or seven years. I'm, I'm spacing it. Uh, and we actually were thinking, we wanted, it, it was funny because before, consulting with a real estate lawyer, we're like, oh, maybe we shouldn't sign such a long lease. And they're like, no, no, you want to sign a longer lease because you want to keep your rent break in there. Uh, we, you know, we knew nothing about that. We're like, oh, maybe we want to sign a two to three year lease. They're like, no, you do not want to do this. So I believe our initial lease was five years. And we were we were lucky enough to also have, uh, when we left our companies in New Hampshire, they both gave us remote work part-time. So we were bringing in like a small income, but as far as starting the restaurant up, that was, that was really tough as far as just finding any kind of funding or bank loan or anything. So, uh, no bank on your first restaurant go will give you money. There's just, you know, restaurants are so risky. They, you know, and we had no restaurant experience to boot. So even, you know, if you have good credit or whatever, it's, 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 it's a tough, it's a tough market to get any kind of bank loan for a restaurant. So we basically were just searching out that way. Uh, But we knew, you know, pretty early on that that was going to be a hard way for us to, to actually raise money. So we had some savings and then we also reached out to friends and family, mostly family. And we were able to get, uh, I'm originally from Canada and I was born and raised in Canada and also my mother is still there. And we were able, luckily enough, to get uh, a bank loan through her banker. So it was a bank loan where they knew my mother and they were willing to, to extend it to us to open up this restaurant, which is kind of crazy that, you know, I was getting this Canadian bank loan for a restaurant that I was opening up in the U.S., but that's how it worked out for us. Um, since then there, you know, this is, we're talking 2005. So since then there have been a lot more opportunities just, uh, at higher interest, I would say, cause that market has opened up for who can lend. Uh, and you'll see a lot of different, uh, type of lenders who, you know, you, you can guarantee your credit card sales against things and whatnot. That wasn't, that wasn't around back when we first opened, it was basically the, the traditional bank route. And there was no way that we were getting any kind of funding that way. Right. Okay. So let's go back to, um, you know, when you guys signed your lease, you get the the keys to your storefront. What, what's your first step? Like, what do you do next? Do you do research and development, um, you know, for recipes? Do you, you know, start hiring a contractor? What, what was kind of the process with all that? Right. So, so our process, so while we were actually looking for a space too, one of the things we did do was we took this kind of crash course on how to open a restaurant um, at the, at the culinary school in, in Manhattan. And, you know, that gave us a contact to someone who'd been in the industry for a long time. So, you know, we were, we had presented our business plan to him. Uh, and 
then we also so we knew that there you know there was two two paths two very strong paths that we had to take once we signed our lease one was obviously recipe development and the other was the build out and so my husband basically that he took took ownership of the build out uh, with my, with of course my help, and then I took ownership of the recipes, and the creative w- with his help. So it was great because we both kind of had individualized projects that we could focus on without getting in each other's way. Because <laughs> we, we definitely have both, we both have different strengths, and we have different, um, you know, we we both in, we enjoy different portions and different aspects of running the restaurant. So this worked out in our favor uh, as far as what our strengths and what we like to do. And we had actually at, it must've been like around this time. I'm trying to think of the timeline, September, October timeframe, we had gone to this fundraiser and it was a, it was a cooking fundraiser. It was like a culinary fundraiser. And what, how I found out about it funnily enough was actually while I was job interviewing for uh, a, a you know project manager job in my engineering world in New York City uh, before we had decided that we we're definitely doing the restaurant in my job interview I was on like my third job interview with with this uh, company and the girl interviewing me would, had mentioned this this fundraiser and I you know it'd come out that we like food what you know we like to eat out trying out all these new places and she said oh you should check this place out so we went to this fundraiser and at this fundraiser there was a chef uh, doing a demonstration there she was very charismatic and we approached her and asked her if she consulted on the side. And she actually worked at a cooking school and she said she'd be interested to talk to us. So we had a meeting with her and she was very interested in helping us out. And basically what would, what, what would happen from that point onwards is I would work on the recipes in my apartment. I would bring my recipes to the cooking school. We would, she would, you know, I would cook them with her and we'd have a panel of the chefs who worked at the cooking school taste test and help me refine them. So it was, you know, it was, a, it was such a fun process and it was magnificent to have this wonderful set of taste buds uh, in front of me who would, you know, help to decide what recipes would ultimately be on the menu at Smack. And concurrently, my husband was basically he was hunting down to find a contractor that we could trust and afford to build out our restaurant and again you know he was doing that by talking to other restaurant owners he actually met our contractor on the bowery which is you know a street in manhattan that has or used to have all the restaurant supply stores and and uh, all the lighting and furniture and whatnot he met this guy there and and we started on the design and build of the restaurant, which basically, you know, we didn't have the means to hire an architect and we didn't have the means to, to come up with any kind of like interior design work. It was just me and him kind of putting on paper and trying to execute with the contractor. What, what do we want smack to feel like? What do we want smack to be? And, uh, ultimately, you know, it came out the way we wanted to, like we made a few changes here and there over time, but it really was, what came straight from our hearts great 
So once you guys had, you know, kind of gotten the recipes down and gotten, uh, you know, most of the build out in the way that you wanted the restaurant to look, what what was the next step? Did you guys, um, you know, reach out to any PR firms? Did you guys do any sort of advertising before you opened your doors or? Uh, we didn't do any advertising before we opened our doors until actually, in all honesty, we have not done any paid advertising since we opened except for one uh, one commercial that we ran in a taxi cab uh, it was uh, it was called taxi TV uh, and it's really you know we wanted to open up quietly this was our plan was to open up quietly because we had not ever done this and we would you know iron out the kinks the first couple of months of opening up the restaurant and from that point onwards then we would focus on um, you know, hiring a PR agent and hiring, you know, doing a, doing press releases, uh, doing a media package, all of that. And what happened to us was kind of the flip of that because, uh, you know, there's there's some really awesome things to that go hand in hand with opening up a business in New York City. Uh, it can be scary. There's a lot of competition, but on the flip side, if you're actually opening up something that's new, that no one's ever done before, then everyone wants to write about you and everyone wants to highlight you. And we had, we didn't even know that, you know, we had had this coming soon smack Serena's macaroni and cheese orange sign on our window from December of 2005 onwards. And then when we finally got close to opening, uh, my husband who was a software engineer and, you know, had done, uh, you know, was familiar with running, setting up websites and stuff. He had set up our website very last minute. And two days before we opened, our website basically crashed because we got so many hits on it. I'm like, oh my gosh, what? Up, about a week before we opened, uh, our phones are ringing nonstop. And it was, you know, any kind of media and publication you can think of local to New York. So like the Times and the Post and New York Magazine, Time Out. And they all want an exclusive to write about our opening. And again, we're green. Like we had no idea what, you know, we weren't planning on doing any kind of advertising before opening. And so we had Time Out come in and take some pictures. We had New York Post come in. Uh, New York Times wrote something. And we we're just like, oh my goodness, what are we in for? And sure enough, the day we opened uh, was June 24 2006 and that day was insane like I don't want to call it a nightmare but because it was like our opening day but it literally was a hundred degrees in New York City and we had a line two hours before we opened we had a line already down the block and we had five employees like we were set for a quiet opening and we were basically feeding like just an insane amount of people we ran out of food within the first two hours of opening it was it was awful it was crazy hot my ac was undersized for the space uh we were just like we we couldn't we couldn't service it and this kept going on for like the next month of business it was it was literally insane for us uh i i had to triple my staff within the first two days of opening and we were just not equipped. I had a friend who walked by one day. She saw what was happening. She ran and she's like, how can I help? And I had to put her work for, to work for the next five hours. So we, we had this kind of opposite 
quote problem, quote unquote. And you know, it's, it's, it's great to have everyone come in, but it's also not so great if you're not, you know, you're not satisfying your customers. And the other thing was that most people who were lining up to come eat at Smack at that time were not going to be our long-term regular customers. These were people who read about us, who were like, we want to be the first ones to eat at this restaurant that just got written about. So it was really kind of people coming in to like try it, but maybe they would never come back again. Right. And that's not how, you know, that was not the vision we had for the for our Smack. Our vision was we'd open, open up this neighborhood, comfort food, local joint, that you know we'd know eventually know everyone's name we'd you know we'd we'd have a relationship with our customers uh and this was not how the first couple months went the first couple months went it, like it was we were you know pleasing people but also displeasing people you know people were getting cut off in the line we were not able to focus on this community that we wanted to so we had to just focus on like getting food out as fast as we could and you know we learned a lot in that first couple of months and we slept basically zero, you know, we were working 20 hour days. Uh, and it wasn't until September of 2006 that, uh, so like two and a half months later that we were actually able to like, just take a breath and be like, okay, what can we focus on now? And what we really needed to focus on at that point was, all right, we proved, I mean, we proved the concept out in a short amount of time. We're going to have the business how do we make this a much quicker process with, with, with still making like hook to order meals? Cause that's what we were doing. You know, we weren't gonna be, we weren't fast food. We were fast casual. Everything was real ingredients being, you know, being, you know, cheese being shred every day, everything being cooked on site uh, every day. And we had to figure out how to do that. So that's kind of where, you know, that's where the beauty of our engineering backgrounds came in. Right. We had so many engineering projects that lasted for like the next next three to five years uh, between like food science stuff, takeout packaging, um, new kitchen equipment, all of that my husband and I had, fo we focused on for the next three years plus just to make sure that Smack could function, you know, at its peak. Right. Yeah, and I want to come back to, um, you know, your day-to-day -day operations and, and kind of how your engineering backgrounds play into all that. But I have a few more questions um, about your opening, uh, you know, months or so, because it, it is actually very common with, with New York specifically, um, you know, b because there's so many media outlets in New York. You know, if, if a restaurant or um, a hotel or, you know, anything opens that's, um, you know, unique at all, New York is on it. And, you know, the whole the whole kind of thing with lines out the door. I mean, that that is like very stereotypical New York. That does not happen in places like Los Angeles or Chicago as much as it does in New York. Um, you know, and that's part of the reason why restaurants in New York are so successful. But also, you know, it could be challenging to mitigate, you know, the the long lines and, and all that. So when you guys were in the middle of, of that opening uh, season, did you have any complaints from customers or, you know, who maybe were complaining about the line or maybe, you know, it wasn't moving as fast or did you guys have to deal with any, I guess, negative pushback from that? We did. We did. We, we, we had, you know, people who were upset. Uh, also, you know, once you're standing in line for like an hour plus somewhere, your expectation is also pretty high of what you're going to eat. So I found that a lot of people who would come in, uh, 
there was, you know, so many happy ones, but then there'd be people like, what, like, why do I stand in line for this? It's like mac and cheese. Like it is, that's what we serve. We serve mac and cheese, you know? So it is, you know, it really is, uh, it, that was like, so we kind of had a double whammy. It's like, okay, we were now mitigating, tr- trying to mitigate this issue of people waiting too long, but also now their expectation is like, so through the roof because they've waited, um, that, you know, our food is what our food is. You know, we're not, we, there is no time that we ever advertise ourselves as, uh, you know, we're, we're, we, you know, we're, we've, we're creating this kind of like five-star unique, uh, high-end mac and cheese. Now it's mac and cheese. Yes. It's done in different ways. Yes. And it's as fresh as can be. And, you know, we got some different takes on our menu, but you know, we've never, we never advertised it as some kind of like, it's, it was, it's not fancy. We never wanted to right. be fancy. We want to appeal to everyone. Right. So I think that that, that was something that we had to really push through too. It's just the expectations. Um, you know, I go back, you know, I think about that regularly over the years and how much we've learned as business owners. And the fact of the matter is, yeah, I'm sure there's people from those very initial days who would never come back to smack because of that, because they were in that long line and they just wouldn't want to, you know, didn't want to do that again. I also have some really great customers who were like, we came to you the very first week and we saw how crazy it was. And of course, then, just, then they're like, we gave you a couple months after like, after things die down a bit to like come back. And so, you know, you never know what that, what that kind of rejection rate is, but right. I'm sure, you know, there. I, I, I have yet to meet them because they haven't come back. Right. right. But I'm sure there's people who were, who were dissatisfied and not only, you know, not only that back then when we did first open, there were very few outlets, um, social media outlets for people to complain on per se. Like, you know, Yelp was around, but it wasn't that big and there was no Google reviews or any of those things. So, uh, yeah, we, we didn't do things, do a lot of things right at the very beginning but we're also kind of lucky that we were in a time where social media wasn't so huge, you know, right. uh, Facebook wasn't so big back then. It was just very new. Uh, uh, Instagram wasn't even there or Twitter, you know, so all of these things, uh, if we were to do that today, I'm sure that we would be hearing many of these things uh, through social media, which didn't yeah. happen. Well, you would, I mean, if you were to open a a new restaurant today and you knew it was going to get, you know, the amount of press coverage, uh, you would almost need to plan for something that you could do to keep people entertained in line, you know, so that way at least, you know, because they're they're doing it to themselves. They're waiting in line. So they're the ones who are building up the expectations. And it's, you know, it's unfair because you're providing the service that, you know, you said you would and and all that. But yeah, it's people's expectations, especially in New York when they're waiting in line, um, you almost need to cater to it and just be like, all right, like, let's get like an MC, let's get a magician, you know, like something to keep them entertained. So that way, you know, when it does happen, you know that you can at least be on top of it, you know, so... Um, but yeah, okay, well, cool. So, so since the, you know, the opening, um, how, how have things been? I know you said, you know, things like settle down. Do you guys still have, you know, pretty steady stream of traffic? Um, what percentage of your, your current foot traffic is tourists versus regulars? Um, I'd love to hear more, more about that. Sure. So we have, uh, yeah, we, we're, we're, pretty steady with with our sales and we've I mean we've gone through 12 plus years so we've actually we opened a few other locations we've closed those closed those locations we've moved our original location down the block to 
a corner bigger location. So we've gone through a lot of transition uh, over the years, and we, you know, we've had our, we've definitely had our ups and downs. Um, one of, you know, the the great things is our, you know, with our current location, is we probably, I would, I mean, I don't have exact numbers on this, but I would say more more than 70% of our traffic are regulars and 30% tourists. That will change a little bit in the summer and winter months. But if I did a generalized, like, you know, average over the year, I'd say it's probably like a 70-30 split. And we, you know, we have people still coming in that literally started coming in in 2006. Like, I've seen so many kids grow up and go to college and it shocks me still when I see them like oh my god this is the same little kid that used to come in to smack with their you know mom or dad and now they're there with their friends um, and then we also have this whole new generation of people coming in so I think that you know for us the staying power is there and we also know that we want we know we are working on expansion again it's just you know we've learned some lessons in our previous attempt to expand uh versus what we kind of want to do now looking forward okay so uh, that leads me into uh one of my next questions is which is what advice would you have for a budding um restaurateur Uh, (laughs) where where to begin with i'm sure there's a lot of stuff yeah yeah, there's a lot. One thing, uh, you know, like I mentioned before, was talk to people, talk to other, uh, you know, other restaurant owners, pick their brains. Um, one thing that I would say is been a weakness of ours that I need to do more of, uh, and this is like again 13 years in the business, is surrounding ourselves with with peers on a regular basis. You know, peers, mentors. Uh, anyone to kind of get you out of your bubble world to, to uh, you know, throw ideas around. For us, it's like there's myself and Caesar, and we, you know, we obviously have each other as sounding boards, but we're still in our own bubble. You know, we, it's us and our restaurant. So we need to more often than we do, it, you know, talk to other people. Um, you know, run ideas by other people. We do I definitely have some advisors that are great, but I feel like we need to utilize them more. So that that would be one strong piece of advice that I would give to a budding restaurateur. Uh, another one is, you know, trust your gut. There, the times we, you know, the times that we found things worked in our favor were when we went with our gut feeling and what made sense to us. Uh, as opposed to, so it's kind of like this, you know, you have to kind of play both sides, like as opposed to listening to all these external forces. So you need advice and you need help and you should always, you know, share to get that advice and help. But if something doesn't feel innately right with an idea, then, you know, you need to like look inside deeper with that. And I feel like that that's happened to us before is that we've let external forces also dictate or, or, or override what we thought was the right thing to do to move forward. Um, so there's there's a lot of of uh, back and forth in that in that realm, if that makes sense. I think that also, you know, at the end of the day, it's you know it's your business, and even if you get you're going to have to get people to help you with your business. Obviously you can't do everything. You're not going to be an expert in everything, 
but you have to always stay involved with everything you know early on like things like graphic design and and uh even general like con the contract contracting with the with the restaurant and all of our renovations over time and whatnot it's like this is this is a part of you and you need to stay involved so uh whenever we got legal help with with leases or you know creating our business or any of that stuff it's it's great to have professionals to help you but you can never be hands off i mean ever like i can't like you need to have an active role or at least understand what is going on because there are so many times where people get uh, outside resources to help them and then they kind of think okay that's taken care of um, and again, it's happened to us too. Then it's taken care of, and then you loop back with it, and you realize, oh my goodness, I really need to be in the loop with this. So, um, at the end of the day, it really is important to stay connected to your business. And I know that probably sounds weird, and people are like, well, most people must be doing that, but a lot of people don't do that because there are also are so many moving parts. So when you can actually release a moving part from your from your plate, it feels good. But you still need to have like this kind of thread connected to it. You can never, ever cut off entire. Right. That leads me on to my next question um, really smoothly. So in terms of the day-to-day operations, what does it look like for um, you and your husband and your staff? So, you know, what roles do you both play on a daily basis? Do you have like a manager who's in charge of reporting back to you? How does that whole process work for you guys? Yeah, so we have a manager, a full-time manager, and most of our staff has been with us now for over eight years plus. There's some people who have been there for like 11 years and some people who have been there for like six plus. So when I do my average, it's like almost eight years. So uh, I like to think of the restaurant operation as a well-oiled machine at this point uh, as much as it can be. Uh, So that's that's probably one of the hardest uh, pieces of the puzzle is having a good staff and a good team. And, you know, I, I got to touch wood here, but we've got an amazing team at the restaurant. Uh, and they've been, you know, they've been with us for so long. So the manager is someone that we, you know, we've had for a while too. And I, between my husband and I, we still, we do special projects. I go in, I love to be in the restaurant. I love to be in the front of the house. I love seeing the customers. So I, you know, I will pick up a couple of shifts just for the sake of being there, just, you know, working, working in front. Um, Other than that, like I do all of the human resource part of um, the back end and also any kind of projects. My husband works on projects as well. I can go into some of what those would be. And uh also, we're, you know, the two of us are working at it, you know, looking at an expansion plan, too. So our day is not structured. Uh, it, you know, our days aren't super, they're structured by our, us, actually, you know, they're not so like, you know, every day, like, I don't have to be at the restaurant, you know, these five days of the week, or neither does he. So, you know, like I said, we both go in a handful of times during the week. And then I can do some stuff from home too, which is nice. Like today talking to you, I, I, I did payroll this morning, finances, bookkeeping, all of that. Um, as far as our projects go though, you know, one thing that we've, we really, really felt strongly about is creating a business that we're proud of. You know, we came from a totally different background and we entered this restaurant industry and we had to learn so much, but we also saw like, it was like we entered an industry where, you know, 
people aren't, you know, aren't necessarily being treated the best in this industry. And it was kind of shocking to us. Uh, so one of the things that, you know, we've been doing the past couple of years with our core staff now is uh, actually uh, we, we, you know, we came up with our purpose and our values of SMAC and how we want to move forward. And, and Caesar and I have always thought about that and, kind of executed on our own, but we wanted to get the staff involved, especially since the staff that's been with us for so long, you know, we want all of them involved. So we've been working on that. And so like that, like our, you know, one of our bigger projects is just creating this company to, you know, to further our employees, to like be a place where, you know, you can come into SMAC and maybe, maybe stay here, maybe not, but whatever skills you learn at SPAC, you can learn, you can apply in your life skills. So that's been a big thing for us that we've been working towards. Uh, you know, we have other projects too. You know, we've always been since, you know, a few years into opening, we've been a very allergen friendly place. You know, we do all of our items gluten-free. We've got vegan. We want to, we're now working on one of our projects is like a low carb keto uh recipe or multiple recipes that you know we have diabetic customers who've been asking us for years and we're like you know we really need to focus on that now so you know we've got like these different projects that we're working on but at the end of the day all of it for us has to add value to uh our staff not only you know not only our customers but our staff and then for us to see value in operating a company we just don't want to do it for the sake of running a restaurant we want it to be a much bigger thing than a restaurant Right. Well, I mean, the the fact that you guys have such low employee turnover and that, you know, people have been staying with you, the retention, you know, is six to eight years. I mean, that's that's pretty unheard of in the restaurant industry. So you guys are, you know, clearly doing something right on the on the HR front. You know, I'd love to um, talk a little bit more about that. Um, I did want to touch on something that you just said about, uh, you know, kind of adjusting your menu. And, you know, you said you have projects where you're working on um you know, making things like gluten-free and keto and, and all those things, how much of that is, or I guess my question is how much of your menu design and menu redesign is influenced by social media versus what people want? So I have to say that we are very, very limited in being influenced by social media, like that we don't, you know, I almost see it as, you know, we have our social media accounts and we're, you know, we're relatively active on them, but we don't take that external influence. It's more of what do we see smack as and what do our customers directly tell us? And a lot of that's been like a face-to-face conversation. For us, when we first opened, we had no idea what gluten-free was. We had no idea what celiac was. We had, And we started getting requests for that. So this is in 2006. By 2008, it took us a year to actually be able to offer everything on our menu gluten-free. Uh, and that was a huge project for us. But we also felt like, okay, this is really important. We're getting enough people requiring it. And we, one of our, you know, one of our core values is to be able to offer smack to anyone who wants it. And that means like uh, allergy wise, monetary wise, you know, we keep our prices as low as possible. So there's certain, you know, that kind of came into our our core purpose and values. Uh, So right now, if you were to ask me what our driving force 
is for the restaurant. It really is comes down to the, our core purpose and values and what we've defined with our staff, what those are, and any question or any change that we wanted to make within the restaurant, we go back and say, okay, does this actually align with our core purpose and values? Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, you see tons of restaurants now, you know, that create items, um, you know, they'll come out, you see them, you know, either on like eater or, um, insider, you know, on Facebook and you're like, that item was created for social media. You know, it'll be something like, uh, you know, like a, a big, like a uh, milkshake, you know, or like a huge Bloody Mary with like a whole chicken on top stuff of that, you know, where it's like, it's, it's not possible to eat all of that in one sitting. You're like, you created that for social media, but is it actually good? Um, so yeah, no, it's refreshing to hear that you guys make your decisions based off of your value and purpose, um, you know, which is good. And I think a lot of restaurants, you know, could learn something from you because of the fact is, you know, you have such a high employee retention rate, which is, you know, obviously makes your life a lot easier if you're not having to constantly hire and retrain employees. Um, so yeah, that that's great. So I guess, you know, coming back to that really quick, in terms of, you know, you said you handle all the HR, what are some of, you know, the guiding principles or tools that you use to be able to kind of facilitate, um, you know, a good relationship with your employees. I know you said you have your purpose and your values and you had them be involved, but, you know, is there anything else like kind of above and beyond from an HR perspective that you would like to highlight? Yeah. So when we first started um, and we entered the industry, there were some really basic things, you know, that, that shocked us. Um, We were very naive. You know, we came into this industry just assuming, okay, we're going to come from these office white collar jobs and we're just going to transfer that to to you know our our business because this is what we know and we like just you know right off the bat offering paid vacation I, it took me so long that first year of being with my staff to convince them that if they took the paid vacation that was offered to them they would still get a paycheck like there were people who were pushing back who would not take their vacation because they did not trust that there would be an employer out there who would give them a paycheck for not working. And those things, like, I, I was just in awe of that. Like, how is this even possible? Um, I remember when we first, you know, it's very common in the restaurant industry to, pe- to have people paid by shift pay. And this is what we were taught by other chefs. You know, you pay by shift. And we got through the first couple weeks after, like, that craziness that I was telling you about. Like, the first month, we were like, this shift pay does not make sense because these people are working such long hours and it's crazy. So we changed to a uh, regular hourly and overtime system, you know? So, so that was also a battle. Like no one, no one could understand like, no, no, we want our shift. I'm like, you're going to make more money. We're paying you overtime for the extra hours you work. Right. And no one, and then we, 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 just, we had to change the system. And then when they first got their paychecks the next week, they were like, Oh my gosh, this is for real. So, you know, it was like these basic fundamental well I was like fundamental human rights that people should have working in this industry or any industry uh, that they weren't getting before so these are like very basic things that we offered uh, we also we used to do this I'll be honest with you now we, we, we can't do this anymore but we did do this in the very beginning um, is we used to offer people monthly metro cards whether they were they were part-time or full-time I'm like I'm trying to work towards that again we had to cut that benefit we had to cut that benefit out after we were uh, 
uh, just after Hurricane Sandy, actually, when we used to have three locations operating at that time, and then we just lost so much money after the hurricane. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's, you know, we're kind of fighting our way back from that. So, uh, so th- those kinds of things. Uh, one, one very obvious thing, though, is, is being open. Like, we have open staff meetings with our staff and push them to, like, share and to talk amongst each other, talk to us. You know, if you want to complain about us, complain about us to the manager and we will try and fix it. You know, it's 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 a very much we're in this together feel. And uh, I hope that, you know, and I believe that the staff understand that, like, I couldn't do this without them and I need them to make this work. And I feel like they definitely they definitely feel that appreciation. Um, you know, you, we do an annual friends and family staff Thanksgiving party. You know, we close the night before of Thanksgiving early, we put on this huge Thanksgiving dinner. We'll do something different every year, whether it's karaoke or pool or table tennis. Or but it's just like, you know, that whole, okay, we appreciate you and we know that you guys are doing the hard work. So let's, let's give back where we can. We always, you know, we, we shut down on days that a lot of New York city restaurants don't shut down on. We give everyone Christmas off. We give everyone Christmas Eve off. We give everyone New Year's day off. Like, so those things, uh, July 4th, we, we very much recognize that people have lives outside of work and we, we try to accommodate that as much as possible. I'm, I, I'm very flexible with scheduling, probably too flexible sometimes. Like I have to go back and be like, listen guys, we accommodate everyone's schedule. You know, some people take on second jobs some people are going to school. Uh, so we want people to understand that, you know, this is a place where we're going to accommodate you as much as possible, as long as, you know, you're willing to, to do the hard work while you're here. So, uh, I think those are just some of the things that that speak to why people have stayed with us for so long. Yeah, well, that that's great. I mean, that's all that's all really great advice that I think a lot of restaurant owners, uh, you know, would benefit from, especially if they're trying to, you know, build a team and and make sure that their employees want to stay um, there for longer. So that's all great. Um, okay, great. So. I have a couple questions for you um, that aren't necessarily related to your restaurant, but that kind of have to do more with like New York food scene and and all that. Yeah. So what is the best meal that you've ever eaten in New York at a restaurant that is not your own? Oh, yeah. So I would have to say that would be a meal that we had at 11 Madison Park, which can go by EMP as well. Um, that was, geez, that was probably nine years ago. Yeah, it would be nine years ago. It was an anniversary dinner. And for the life of me, I can't tell you exactly what we ate. We had so, it was like, there were so many courses in that meal, but everything we ate was over the top delicious and coupled with the hospitality, you know, any Danny Meyer restaurant, you feel so special at those places and at the time that EMP was owned by Danny Meyer and it really like I walked away feeling like we were treated like royalty and you know we're just we're just any average person coming in to eat so it really really was the food coupled with the hospitality that stands out in my mind okay Great. And uh, so besides that one meal that you had there, what would be your favorite restaurant in New York that you go to on a regular basis? You know, there's there's a couple of East Village haunts that, you know, I, I swear by. Uh, there's one place called Cafe Mogador. Uh, 
and they are you know they're definitely a neighborhood joint you know it's not like a place you're going to see written up or that's new by any means but they their food you know the place is always busy their food is Moroccan and Mediterranean inspired and it's delicious every time I've recommended that restaurant to probably over 30 friends who now all regularly go there Uh, and it's just one of those those places where it's you know you walk in and you know the food's going to be awesome and it's kind of unexpected because it's just this smaller place on the side street in the east village of Manhattan I also swear by the pierogies at Veselka which is a Ukrainian diner that's been in the neighborhood literally forever. It's like one of the oldest places in the East Village and pierogies, their pierogies are handmade by these Ukrainian women uh, who are, are probably just making these by the hundreds every day and they're they're just delicious. I get the boiled ones though, so I always recommend getting the boiled ones. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks. We'll... Uh... We'll link to those in the show notes so that people can can check them out when they're in New York. Um, cool. All right. Well, let's see here. I guess, um, you know, I guess unless you have anything else that you want to add, um, I'd love to tell our listeners where they can find out more about you, more about Smack. Um, you know, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, great. So we are... Uh... We are located at 197 First Avenue in New York City. It's at the corner of 12th Street, and it's in the East Village in Manhattan. Our website, it's very easy to get in contact with me through our website at eatsmack. So that's eat and smac.com. We're on Facebook. Our handle is eatsmack. We're on Twitter and Instagram. Also, our handle is eatsmack. So basically, we want you to come and eat smack. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much today for this conversation. It's been really enlightening. You know, we've learned a lot about, um, you know, good HR practices for the restaurant industry, as well as, you know, the importance of doing your research before you um, you open a restaurant. So, you know, I'd like to thank you. This has been a great conversation. Um, And to all our listeners, we will uh, see you next time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Eat and Stay Podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast so we can keep bringing you these episodes week after week. If you have any comments, questions, or want to be interviewed on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to us via email at eatandstaypodcast at gmail.com or join our private Facebook group, Eat and Stay Podcast Listeners. We'll see you for next week's episode, but in the meantime, remember to eat and stay well.